Oriental Motor UK's podcasts are a convenient and accessible resource for anyone involved in specifying and buying motors, drives or actuators for industrial applications. I'm Paul Jempson, new business analyst at Oriental Motor UK. In each podcast, I discuss a wide variety of market sectors served by Oriental Motor. Together with hosts Nicole Piaz-Turner and Caroline Hayes, we explore a range of products with considerations for choosing the most appropriate motors for the automation of many applications, including food production and packaging, pharmaceutical products, scientific and laboratory machines, and even automation in the entertainment and travel industries. Some of the examples discussed might really open your eyes. Hello, Paul. Hello, hello. Great to be here again. Uh, How are yeah, you very doing? well. How are you both doing? We're good. We're really good. Yes, good, thanks. Yeah, we're very Excellent. good. You're going to tell us today about how to choose a motor. That's right. Motor sizing and selection. Paul, can I ask you, what do you mean by motor sizing and selection for those that don't necessarily know the technical terms? All right, absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm actually really glad to be talking about this today because this is a subject really quite close to my heart, I have to be honest. Um, what motor sizing and selection really means is getting the right motor for your application. Um, we touched on it briefly in a couple of our previous conversations on, on here, um, but we didn't go into any real detail. So... Um, Motor sizing and motor selections are the two key considerations um, that go hand in hand during the design stages of machine manufacturing. Um, Essentially, this is how to choose the most suitable and most appropriate motor to drive any particular axis in a machine. Now, this literally applies to any application that involves motion of some kind. Uh, The movement of components in any given machine have to be driven by something generating force. And in the vast majority of machines in the market, these are going to be driven by electric motors of one kind or another. So what sort of motors are we talking about here? You say electric motors. What kind and where were they used? Well... Electric motors are absolutely everywhere. Um, They're used in a staggeringly wide range of applications. Uh, But because they're hidden inside a machine or behind panels or a housing of some kind, people don't really think about how how common motors actually are. Um, If we take a look at everyday life, there are any number of things that you would commonly see in the world around you um, that are moved by motors. Um, say the conveyor belt at your supermarket checkout, Um, any kind of automatically opening doors, sliding doors, rotating doors, anything like that. Um, A bit close to home maybe, the the windscreen wipers in your car, um, electric windows in your car, um, the seats which move electronically if you're lucky enough to have car with automatic seats. Um, in your shopping mall or supermarket, again, escalators, elevators, travelators, which are the things at the, uh, at the airport that make you walk really fast. Um, back in your house, if you look at your kitchen, your, your blender, your food processor, uh, electric whisk, um, the rotating plate in your microwave, um, any power tool you've ever used, and I've got more than enough of those, believe mm-hmm. me. 
Um, or any fan you've ever seen in a piece of equipment or machinery, like your, your laptop fan when it kicks in or, or anything like that. Any one of those and any number of other things that I couldn't possibly list here are driven by motors. Um, these are just um, examples of equipment or machinery that you might see yourself um, in, in, in everyday life. Motors are actually way more widely used than people are generally aware of, if only because people aren't generally aware of quite how much the automation industry as a whole is involved in creating things that you use or consume every day. Okay, so that's quite a, a range there. We're talking about from small fans and domestic appliances uh, to, to large pieces of automation. What can you give us a, uh, an example of something we take for granted? Uh, it's coming up for lunchtime, so about what lunch. about the supermarket sandwich, for example? Oh. <laughs> I, actually, do you know what, about Caroline? Lunch, that's that's uh... <laughs> we, we always work it in, don't we? Yeah, it, it was a lasagna last yeah. time, wasn't it? Yeah. But uh, no, actually, do you know what, Caroline? That's that's a really, really good example right there. Uh, something as simple as a supermarket sandwich. We've all eaten them at some point. Some some of them are quite good. Some of them aren't. Um, but no names, um, but no actually, <laughs> but a lot of effort goes into making a sandwich. Um, and I, again, I think a lot of people just don't even realise it. So, for example, let's take the bread. A few different machines will have gone into baking the bread and cutting the bread. Um, but, you know, that, that bread's going to have to be, the dough's going to have to be kneaded in some way. It's going to have to be mixed. It's going to have to be cut, cooked at the right temperature. It's going to have to be cut. So automated baking ovens are a very big market. Um, so that, that'll be uh, where they, they come into the equation. Um, and then the bread will be cut by some kind of ultrasonic cutting machine. Um, and it'll be set to the end customer's thickness. You know, if you get a, a finest or high quality one, it might be a thicker type of slice than if it's a, a budget one, which might be a, you know, a really thin slice. Um, and that's either going to be done by parts of one big larger machine or it'll be two different separate machines. But either way, that, that'll all be an automated process. Um, then if you look at the salad, um, the salad will actually be quality checked by machine. Um, visual systems are very, very good these days, and they will literally reject individual bits of salad that are no good for you know, the quality of them. So the salad will be quality checked by one machine, it will be then washed, it will be dried, it will be cut to size, um, and then it will be put into a position to be portioned into the, um, into the sandwiches, usually in some kind of dispensing hopper. The same will have to be uh, done with the chicken, of course. Um, it will also have been quality controlled by a machine before the cooking stage. Um, it will then be cooked. Um, it will then be chopped or sliced, depending on the, the, end, uh, the end customer's um, specifications. That will be to an appropriate size to be put in the sandwich. And then it will be quality controlled again, um, usually through um, checking systems to make sure that... Um, Nothing's got into there that shouldn't be, so x-ray machines and metal detectors, that sort of thing. Um, then finally, the actual sandwich itself will be assembled by a machine. So it'll lay the bread down, it will spread either butter or mayonnaise onto the bottom slice. Um, chicken will be portioned and spread appropriately, as will the salad itself. Um, and then the top piece of bread will be pressed into place before the sandwich is cut. Again, all by machine. Um, 
then the complete sandwich will be individually packaged. It will be marked with a use-by date, which, which might be burned on with a laser marker or, a, or an inkjet, or it might even be a, a label that's printed and stuck on separately. Then that will be conveyed off into boxes or crates, which will in turn be conveyed off onto pallets and packaged up for delivery in the back of a truck to your local supermarket. Literally every step I've just described above will be automated with machinery, and every piece of that machinery will have several different axes controlling all of the movement and driving all the movement, all of that done by electric motors of one kind or another. I, I mean, wow. I'm just going to say there, if I ever get slightly resentful of spending money on a sandwich, I'm, I'm not going to, because that's a lot of stuff going on there, isn't it, Caroline? There's a lot of stuff going on there. Yeah, I lost count. There was like a dozen. (laughs) You must have done a dozen motors by the time you get to wheeling it out of the warehouse, wasn't you? Yeah, I'm sure. And that's, of course, that's just one type of sandwich. So if, I think if you um, if you look at the different types of sandwiches that are out there, we've gone into detail on the chicken salad, but different fillings will need slightly different machinery to handle them properly and, and, and put it together. So, yeah, even just for that one thing, it's a, it's a huge, uh, a huge area. Um, now, if you think about, say, how many sandwiches you see in your local supermarket any time you go in there, and then you think how many supermarkets there are across just the oh UK God, without like even touching world of sandwiches, isn't it? It's just sandwiches everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's a it's an absolutely huge number of them, and you're going to need a, a huge number of machines to keep up with that daily yeah. demand. Mm-hmm. And of course, we've just only talked about sandwiches. If you think about then how many items you would see in the rest of the supermarket on your supermarket shelves, all. all you know, it's, it's going to all need to be manufactured, packaged, delivered. Um, any ready meal, as we, you know, we talked about in the previous good quality, podcast. Back yeah, to that good lasagna quality, again. ready meals, as we discussed. There yeah. are plenty yeah. of good quality ready meals out there now. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's going to have to be put together in its tray, sealed, packaged. Any liquid item from milk to laundry detergent or whiskey, it's all got to be bottled. And the bottles, of course, have to be manufactured too. And then, again, sealed, corked, top screwed on, boxed, packaged and palletized. Um, any pat of butter or block of cheese, you know, any packet of nuts, any bag of crisps, chocolate bar, ice cream, and anything else you might think of in the supermarket. Um, all of it has got to be manufactured through the use of automation. All of it needing its own specialist machinery to put it together, correctly portioned, quality controlled, and ready for you to pick up off the shelf and put into your trolley. And of course, the trolley was made using automation too. <laughs> So that's that's a lot of machines, and it's well, there's a hell of a lot of motors. And of course, that's just your supermarket goods. So without wanting to overly labour this point, an absolutely huge um, portion of the items that you use in your daily life are made uh, using automation, and you, you just don't think about it. Any book you've ever read has been printed and assembled by machine. Any DVD, CD or Blu-ray you've ever watched or listened to has been pressed, printed, placed in its case, wrapped in cellophane by machine... Most of the furniture you've ever used, the carpet and laminate floors you walk on, um, all made through automation. And 
I could really, really talk your ear off about the complexity of the machines that go into making any of your electrical yeah. items. Your, your PC, TV, mobile phone, all with hundreds of really high-precision components each, all needing to be manufactured individually, all needing to be assembled together, and it just ends up in the, the device that you, you pick up and put up to your ear every day or watch YouTube on or something like that. And it's, it's absolutely amazing, it's a, really. Well, it's, it is, it's, and it's that thing, again, where you just don't think about all the processes before and and actually I I did share something this morning about um you, you know in in business how sometimes when you get a price for something you don't realize all the learning and all the education that's gone before that and it's the same with a product look at all the look at all the processes that have gone into it before it actually gets to the end the end result which is the consumer buys it i mean clearly the automation industry is really extensive and there are many motors out there but you know, tell us, Paul, why motor sizing and selection is so important. I get a bit of an idea, but I'm sure you can um, elaborate on that for us. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, and it's, it's really for that very reason, because motors are used so extensively and in such high volumes. And like any other commodity, they've got a price tag. And I think that's something that's going to be really key in the next 12 months and beyond. There's a lot of financial uncertainty in the world at the moment. Um, the, the COVID situation has, has really been very hard for a lot of businesses. And people are possibly keeping a slightly tighter eye on the purse strings than they would have done in the yeah. past. Um, and that's, that's really the key thing about a motor sizing and selection that's done properly. It can save you a lot of money. So say, for example, if you manufacture a machine that includes four motors, well, what if the motors you use are 50% larger than they actually need to be, with the associated 50% higher price tag? If you then sell 100 of that machine per year, that's 400 motors where you've paid 50% more than you needed to. So, but what if that's in fact 1,000 motors, sorry, 1,000 machines with 4,000 motors, or 5,000 machines with 20,000 motors? You can see quite clearly there how how much that additional cost can have a serious impact and to be honest with you as well 50% too large might sound like an exaggeration but it's not if you're not an expert in in uh, in sizing motors um, a couple of my customers in the past have had motors maybe three or four times larger than they needed to on machines um, that they were using before they came to oriental motor and that's because nobody had done the motor sizing selection for them and so they you know eyeballed it and thought well that's definitely going to be good enough and big enough i'll, I'll go and with that, that. Some people but do, the reality was literally I, that's how the process is done sometimes they'll just look at a machine yeah. and go, oh i think that needs to be that i mean you know I'm sure they do, but that's really interesting that that's how some people decide on the size of a motor. No, it, it's, it's generally the case. Um, g- genuinely, not generally. Some, not everybody goes down that route, but yeah, some, some people really do go down that route. And I mean, sometimes if you're very, very good at your job and you've been making very similar machines for years, yeah, you can be quite accurate with that. But, you know, if, if it's something that's an entirely new machine, uh, a new development or a new angle on something you've done previously, a, a motor sizing and selection is a very good idea to avoid the risk of that happening. Yeah. And I suppose apart from uh, the cost savings, you've got the uh, energy consumption. If the motor's too big and it's pushing too hard, that, that's got to be a, another cost, another disadvantage, hasn't yeah. it? Another reason to get it yes, right. Yes, that's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and energy efficiency is always a, a key concern these days as well, of course. Um, not only from a, an energy usage point of view, but also the ratings on your machine. It's, it's, mm -hmm. always, uh, it's always a nicer thing to be able to say that your machine's more energy efficient than your competitors. So, um, now, of course, it's not only about the price of the motors themselves, it's, it's also about the development time. Um, designing and developing machinery has got a price tag on it. Um, it can be a lengthy and it can be a costly process, um, particularly for a small or medium manufacturer. Um, any time that your engineers are spending designing and commissioning machinery and equipment is time that they're not going to be working on your bread and butter business of building machines and getting them out the door. So there's a very real cost involved in, in that, that time aspect of, uh, of sizing and selection as well. Um, so, I mean, what about the other extremes? If a motor isn't big enough... For, like you know what about if a motor isn't big enough for a particular application we talked about it being too big but if it was too small i mean i guess it works both ways doesn't it yes absolutely um and that can actually be uh, um, really difficult from that development side of things that i was just talking about um so if a motor is designed in that's too small for an application um essentially it can result in redevelopment time because you've manufactured components to fit that small motor, you're, you're mounting plates, or if, it, if you're mounting it into the, you know, the actual framework of the machine, you've, you've pre-drilled holes to fit that small frame size. Um, any kind of pulleys or any linkages from the motor shaft, a, a, a motor that then is larger, if you have to change to that, all of that will have to be remachined and re-drilled. Um, or if it's a, you know, a really high precision component, you know, CNC milled from scratch, which can be very, very costly and times so yeah really you'd be looking at a back to the drawing board situation or well more realistically these days back to the CODs, uh, the CAD software yeah. um, and that's that's not really um, a situation you want to find yourself in because again you're you're eating up that precious development time and you're expending more time in it than you need to be yeah. and that's that could be days or, or weeks can it that that's going to add in a, a delay going back to the drawing board is it I think it could it could realistically turn into weeks. Yes, yeah. um, if if you've um, only got a limited amount of development time that your engineers can spend on a new project at a given point, if if they've got a day a week to be developing it, um, if if you've then wasted um, you know a whole lot of time uh, manufacturing or developing things that you then have to take away and start over again, then yeah, realistically it could push a project back. It's not going to make a happy yeah. customer, is it? If you've got a time scale no. of a job like we all do with everything mm. and you think it's going to take so long and there's mistakes that can be avoided you want to avoid them because time costs yeah. money unfortunately doesn't it so absolutely yeah. and so, i mean uh, of course when you're putting together any new machinery or anything like that there is going to be a little bit of uh, of toing and froing about design it's, it's just the nature of the beast but if you then can take that aspect out of it then that's one less thing to worry about yeah. So to, to design a motor, what would you? What would be a checklist? What would you consider? Um, and, and is there a guide to help of, or help available to talk you through this if you're a novice? Well, actually, you can you can just come to us. Really, um, it's something that we do really as a, as, as a bit of our bread and butter on a on a daily basis with our customers. Um, and uh, it's, it's not something that we charge for. It's not a charged service. It's just something that we would do as, as a bit more collaborative effort with, uh, with any customers looking to make a new machine. So 
to put together an accurate motor sizing, um, what we'll do is we'll take all aspects of the application and do the maths behind it. So we'd look at the materials being used in the machine, the masses of those materials, the dimensions of any moving components in the machine, um, the weight and the size of the load that the machine is going to be moving, uh, the speed that the load is going to be moved, including acceleration rates and deceleration rates, and plus any external forces that are going to be on the machine, like uh, washdown or cooling air curtain or anything like that. Now, with all of this, we calculate the required speed that the motor will need to operate at and the required torque that the motor needs to provide to drive the axis in question. That way, the machine builder can be confident that the motor will not be undersized, causing that uh, expensive redevelopment time, but also that the motor won't be oversized, causing excessive spend on, uh, on the motor. And is that, I mean, with that formula, that because that sounds like a, you know, a formula that people can do but like you say oriental motor do that as part of your process and that is quite an individual thing that you do yeah i mean a, a lot of companies will offer a, a sizing and selection service but i know from speaking to my own customers that it's it's very often it's a charged it? service um yes yeah um so and, really valuable um, it's thing just not that you do then for your customers i would say yeah, I think so, to be honest. Um, to be honest, it's good for us as well because it means we get to know our customers a little bit better yeah. too. They're not just coming to us with a, a speed and a torque range and, and asking for a motor and going away again. We're, we're a bit more collaborative. And also, everyone's more efficient um, because then you, you're going to be you're going to be more efficient and they're going to get a more, um, you know, a, a better customer. It's just the whole process is going to be more effective, really, isn't it? So I think, um, yeah, well, it's great. I mean, that covers the sizing aspects. I think I'm fully versed on that now. Tell us about <laughs> this. I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm just in, in awe of all the things that go on, quite frankly. Um, tell us about the selection process, please. Yeah, sure. So, so once we've done all of the sizing, we, we've got a, a torque figure to aim for and a speed range to aim for. We then need to look at the type of motor. That, the, that it's going to be the most suitable or most appropriate one for an application or any individual axis. Um, and to be honest with you, this is just as important as the size of the motor, really. Um, a really good example of this would be uh, when I get a customer coming to me in the early stages of a project and they immediately say to me, I want to use a servo motor for this. Now, I brought up servo motors in a previous podcast. I mentioned that they, uh, they're excellent motors. They certainly can be excellent motors. Um, but they're often overused, um, and they're not actually warranted or needed for every application. Um, I mean, they're great motors, but you might be use, paying for um, functionality that you don't actually need there. So if we look at why somebody would be asking me for a servo motor for a start... Um, Often, when they ask for a servo motor, they're really asking for a more technically capable motor. Something that can deliver high speed or high torque or high positioning accuracy. Um, usually, they only actually need one or two of these aspects, um, one or two of the things that a servo motor can provide. But they end up paying for all of the other functionality as well, despite the fact that they're never actually going to use it. So why is it, Paul, that you think that the servo motor is the, the default option for people to ask for? Why, why is that? Well, I think it's because servo motors are well known. Um, 
in the past, you had really a couple of choices of motor. If you had a basic application, you'd get a AC induction motor, um, which are nice, simple grunt motors that can just chug away all day um, at their job and, and do that without a problem. Um, but um, then you have, on the other end of the scale, servo motors with all of their amazing functionality. And for a long time, it was either going to be if you had a simple application as uh, an AC induction or if you had a more complex application a servo motor um, and as a result of that I think largely people aren't as aware of products like say brushless DC motors or closed loop stepper motors as they might be of servo motors and they certainly won't be aware of how far brushless DC motors and closed loop steppers have developed and advanced in the last 10 to 15 years um, and what they're truly capable of these days. So often when a more complex or demanding application is being designed, um, the engineer will reach straight for a servo motor without considering those other options like a brushless DC or a closed loop stepper. And to be honest, that can be a quite serious mistake because it can be an absolute killer on a project in terms of cost. I feel like we're on a mission here to, to you know, <laughs> increase productivity, save on costs. I mean, that's all good stuff, isn't it? Do you have any examples of how another choice might save costs? Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's take something that everybody in automation will have seen at some point, a conveyor belt system. They're, they're everywhere. Um, so if we look at, say, a small, low-power but high-speed conveyor belt system, uh, in our own product range, a 100-watt servo motor without a gearhead, but including the driver and including any connector cables, would set you back approximately £900, depending on exactly which options you choose, whether you go for an EM brake or anything like that. Um, however, a 120-watt brushless DC motor with the same package, no, no gearhead, including any driver you need, including any connector cables you need, with the same rated speed as the servo motor, and in fact, higher torque than the servo motor is only going to set you back about £260. So that's less than a third of the wow. price of the equivalent servo motor package. And you certainly don't need the other aspects of a servo motor, the fine fine control, the positional accuracy in something like a, you know, a small conveyor system. So... What was that? Nine hundred pounds down to two hundred and sixty pounds. So, huge. yeah. So, say for example, you sell a hundred of those small conveyors in a year. That's a saving of around sixty-four thousand pounds on a hundred machines. Massive. And some of our customers are selling far, far higher volumes than that. So, um, so yeah, that's a that's a pretty clear example there. Let's take something a little bit more technologically demanding, something like a three-axis robotic arm. Um, you see a lot of robotic arms at trade shows and things, and they are fantastic pieces of kit. But again, they're often really, really overspecced for the applications um, that they're um, being used for. Um, one of my customers in the past, he uh, he was using a off-the-shelf robotic arm system, a six-axis, and it was costing him £30,000 per unit. And they developed a, um, a, a, an equivalent robot arm, which focused just on their requirements um, using our motors, and they brought the cost down to about £7,000. Um, so it's, it's quite amazing, really. Um, he liked you. And... <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was very happy with that. Um, but, um, but if we if we say look at something like um, a three-axis robot arm and break it down a little bit there. So looking at our own range of servo motors again, um, 
we do a 200 watt servo motor and for a robot arm you're going to have a gear head in there something maybe with a 25 to 1 ratio it's going to have an electronic brake on each axis and of course you're going to need the driver and connector cables again so looking at that package, for one of our own servo motor packages, you'd probably be looking at about £1,500. Um, and to be honest as well, our servo motors are on the more reasonable end of the market. With, with some manufacturers, you could be looking at maybe double that for, for, uh, for that kind of package. Now, that would make the cost of three motors for a three-axis robot arm around £4,500. Um, but if you were to take the equivalent closed-loop stepper motor package from our AZ series, also with a 25 to 1 gearhead, uh, also with an electromagnetic brake, also with the driver and appropriate connector cables, you're probably looking at less than £1,000 per axis. So that means the cost of your you know, your three-axis um, robot arm, the motor's cost drops from 4,500 to 3,000 instantly. And again, that's using our servo motors, which are really quite reasonable. Yeah. So if it, if it was ones that are double that, you could half the cost of your, uh, your robot needs on that machine straight away. Yeah. Um, and I have to say as well, I mentioned, you know, that people don't realise how far these motors have come in the last 10, 15 years. With the inertia handling abilities, the absolutely incredible acceleration and deceleration abilities, um, incredible positional accuracy without any need for tuning, and with the field bus and comms systems that are available with these stepper motors now, I think personally I'd have a really hard time justifying the use of a servo motor instead now. I mean, that's just a lot of money saving there. Isn't it? I love your, I love your mathematics that we always have on this. It's like a running theme on these podcasts. We're, you know, we're the equivalent of certain certain uh, establishments that, that save money. I, f I feel a different podcast coming on. But, yeah. yeah, thank you, Paul. That's so interesting. Sorry, Caroline, just interjecting. No, that's all right. Yeah, so I was just you know, thinking money certainly talks, doesn't it? It's a very powerful... Uh, message there and it obviously pays to think outside the box and uh, it was interesting what you were saying about collaboration with your customer of exactly what they're working on exactly what their needs and maybe they don't know quite what their needs are and so you're able to tailor it tailor your motors for them what they think they need isn't always what they actually need by the sounds of it yeah yeah I, I think that's definitely right yeah. um, I mean some you know a lot of our customers are very technically capable people for sure and some of them will come to me and, and they'll basically say I think I need a stepper motor I think I need this amount of torque I think I need this amount of speed so I think I'm going to need this model can you just double check my figures and sure enough they'll be right or, or you know very very close um, some of them but some of them as well will contact me and say Paul I really need help um, I, I need to have something for this system I'm, I'm developing I don't know what kind of motor I'm going for and I don't have the time to sit and try and work it out can I just send you the, the CAD image and, and you have a look for me um and that's you know then we'll do pretty much all of it for them um so yeah and, and any kind of any kind of area between that really but we're always more than happy to take a look at it for them and we're always more than happy to help As, them with it. i mean it's really valuable because someone that has the understandings of all the capabilities to support the machine builder which is what orient motor are and do is is incredibly value and it's 
you know, a bit like me when I sort of sift through certain proposals from people for clients and you know it's getting it you're getting to quicker results for people and more effective and more efficient which is fantastic and um I think it's a brilliant brilliant thing that you actually offer that to people for free because like you say you get to know probably quite a wide customer base that way and people can create a rapport and a good relationship with you for for working before they even get started on the project with you which is fantastic mm, thank yeah. you yeah well I mean Anything else to add to that? I'm I'm starving now. I want to eat a chicken sandwich. <laughs> we should have probably offered a vegan option up as well, to be fair. But um, I mean, there, is there anything else that we, we want to add about motors today? I can't think that we've missed anything. What, what do you think, Paul? Um, I think we've gone into quite a lot of detail there. But if anybody does have any questions, obviously, feel free to get in touch. Yeah, where do we need to we go? Can pick Tell it up from there. <laughs> you can go to our website, which is www.oriental-motor.co.uk. Um, or you can give us a call in the in the office on the number that you'll see on the website there. Amazing. Thanks, Paul. It was really good to speak to you again. Wasn't it, Caroline? It certainly was. I'm never going to look at a chicken sandwich the same way again, that's for sure. We learn something <laughs> thanks to you, Paul. Every time. <laughs> we do. We do. Yeah, it's fascinating. Well, thank you for taking well, the time to speak to us this afternoon. And obviously. No worries. Thank you very, very much for having me back no, on. It's always you're a welcome. pleasure. I know we're going to do some more chats with you, which we always look forward to. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe at Apple or Spotify. For more information on the wide range of compact electrical motors and drive systems, as well as design or specification support for asynchronous, brushless DC, stepper and servo motors, linear motion actuators and fans, all for use in a wide range of specialist markets and industry sectors, visit www.oriental-motor.co.uk.